Alright, this is Dark News Radio, episode number 81, The Fake Covenant. I'm, of course, one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by Chris. How's it going, Chris? Uh, hey, um, yeah, it's pretty good. I've got some gaming planned for this weekend, so yeah, I'm in good spirits. Very good, very good. And we've also got Chig. What's up, Chig? Oh, not too much, Mike. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm really excited for this episode where we're going to be covering both Changeling the Dreaming 20th Anniversary Edition and Secrets of the Covenants for Vampire the Requiem. Very exciting episode. Uh, And yeah, let's just kind of get into a quick little gaming update here uh, right off the bat. I have actually ended my D&D 5th Edition game. Uh, Two of my friends who are hosting us uh, for our games actually just moved to Australia. So uh, we had to wrap that up quick and... uh, we, we did so decently. Um, didn't really get to cover all the story I wanted to, but uh, hit the major points, and they kind of figured out what was going on towards the end. So uh, very happy with that, and uh, I'm glad to have finished up a uh, pretty cool 5th edition campaign. And uh, how about the two of you? Chris, uh, you mentioned you got some gaming lined up. Uh, what's been going, going on? Uh, let's think. Uh, so tomorrow I am running at the friendly local gaming store... Um some shadow war so warhammer 40,000 shadow war Ooh. which is basically necromunda uh so that's kind of a bit of a demo for that uh i'm also going to take along my uh gork morka gangs so i can do an intro to that because essentially it's the same rule system mm-hmm. uh and then uh, so the idea was to try and get as much kind of like sci-fi skirmish kind of gaming going on so i think someone will be running some demos of infinity and uh let's see what else i've been doing uh what else have i been doing obviously let's not forget uh we had uk games expo uh, a couple of weeks back which was really really good so we've got some uh contacts lined up for some interviews we put out some episodes for that like the interview with uh chris from uh modifius uh so like there's some cool new games coming out like or, or already out that i want to look at like uh tales from, uh, tales from the loop Mm-hmm. That yep. looks really sweet. Uh, let's see what other gaming has been going on. Um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the board game I picked up from uh, Expo, and it's really great. It is basically eldritch horror, but it doesn't take freaking ages to play. Uh, and I am planning for a. Uh, uh, let's see, what am I planning for? So I'm building, I'm painting, I've already painted half of them, uh, my Zinch Warband for Age of Sigma Skirmish, because, like, fuck, I'm collecting an entire army. Um, mm-hmm. But the the Zinch, the Zinch Acolytes from um, board game uh, are really good. Uh, let's think, what else is going on um, that's related to that? Uh, were, Warhammer uh... Fantasy Roleplay, yeah, I am yeah. planning. So that's in two weeks' time. Uh, and I've taken liberal inspiration from things like uh, The Witch um, and Brotherhood of the Wolf, uh, just really for like the look and tone of it. And um, and some of the old adventures. So one in particular that's quite good is Sing for Your Supper. Uh, it's just completely batshit crazy, that Warhammer Fantasy uh, adventure. And then, obviously, um, the, the setting is uh, there's a city 
on the border to Sylvania in the Warhammer world between the Empire and the region that is uh, Sylvania mm-hmm. uh, called Essen. Called Essen of all German town names to be, it's Essen, which <laughs> apparently is the most haunted city in the war in the uh, in the old world in the empire so the characters will start out there and they're being sent off on a uh, a mission um because of numerous things that have occurred recently and just literally about two three um, no maybe four days travel from essen is the now damned city of mordheim so i'm setting it literally a few months after the meteorite struck mordheim and turned it into a shattered shell of a city nice i like it uh yeah i actually read through your adventure thus far and it seems like a pretty exciting time so uh yeah good luck with it Cheers. Yeah, it's, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so yeah, that and just painting tons of stuff and playing War Machine Hordes. Shake, what are you doing gaming-wise? Uh, what I'm doing gaming-wise is not much, sadly. Um, ah. Yeah, my uh, local gaming group has had to cancel three of the last four ses- sessions due to either holidays or family in town or, you know, grown-up garbage that we have going on in our lives. It's pretty sad. Uh, we are someday going to get back to a 5th edition D&D game, though. So, got that to look forward to. All right, mm, very good, very it's good. It's been pretty fun. Yeah, uh, is your uh, Torg game done? Is that, uh, is that all the, over? Oh, yeah, the Torg game wrapped up. We then played a two-session game of uh, Savage World Rifts, which... Um, somehow managed to be fun despite being a, a, a less than my favorite system and a less than my favorite setting but you know when you put those two together they worked out better than either of their component parts so good job designers of savage riffs all right excellent excellent cool so i think that's it for the intro and uh let's uh just jump on over into some white wolf news <laughs> Okay, so uh, quite a bit has been going on, and uh, we're going to uh, kind of just uh, uh, tackle this up front, uh, some of the feedback that's been coming out of the uh, new Vampire the Masquerade 5th edition you know, V5 playtest, uh, the uh, pre-alpha material that's come out thus far. Uh, so we got this a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. and um, you know, just uh, first off, looking at the rules, very interesting, uh, you know, the... The hunger dice mechanics are uh, pretty interesting and very novel, um, so that's kind of an exciting thing uh, to check out. And some of the other uh, system changes that they've included, such as removing botches, putting in compulsions, and uh, all of that. Very interesting from the rules perspective. Uh, however, there's been quite a bit of controversy about the adventure and uh, one of the characters that was included in the V5 pre-alpha. Just kind of tackling this up front, one character, a uh, player character, uh, is named Amelina, and she is a venture with the uh, feed restriction uh, that she can only feed off of children. And uh, many people have uh, you reviewed this content, looked at the character, and they're they're not happy with it. Um, they're it, it's basically it's a it's a pedophile character that you can't really get around it anyway. 
and people don't like that they are being asked and uh to play this character there's really no other options unless you only have you know three players in the game then you can just uh take this one out Mm -hmm. and uh, another aspect of this whole uh play test is that we're asked to not change around any of the characters or introduce any new content or rules to just play it as is and uh people are definitely not happy with that so just to kind of jump into i guess my own opinion and then we can kind of discuss this a little bit um you know this is a uh this is a horror game that we are playing here so these sorts of things these uh very difficult subjects and even sometimes offensive things could come up at your table if everyone is you know comfortable with it comfortable exploring it and specifically if you want to you know, explore pedophilia in your games at your table, that's fine as long as all of your players are consenting and they're they're okay with it. You know, personally, uh, I was, I've been talking to you, you guys about maybe running the uh, play test. And if I were to do so, uh, this character is definitely out. I just don't have any interest with, uh, you know, having like mm-hmm. a recording or my, names, my name associated with this sort of a character and that sort of a role-playing experience, you know, in public or even really in private. Um, so... That's kind of my opinion just on the subject matter. Now, should this have been included in a playtest as a you know mandatory character with part of the story revolving around them? I don't really think so. It's not good for many groups, uh, and it's just not content that they really want to explore. Yeah. I'll jump in on my opinion on this. Again, you're right. What you do at your own table is what you do at your own table because you have a... A, uh, a contract, a social contract with your players. Everyone agrees on what the chronicle is that you're running, what the story is that you're running, what the content of the game will entail, what things you won't bring into the game, and thus what players can create as their characters. So if that's all said and done, then how grim dark you want to go is up to you personally. Now, well, having run Vampire the Requiem, I'll be honest, like, you know, my wife's character for Vampire the Requiem has done some heinous shit, let's be honest. But that is by agreement at the table of, we all understand this is not a nice character. We are not doing, we're not treating it like a fairground. You know, the the horrible kind of trauma and uh, disgusting, vile acts. We're We're not kind of just, you know, using it as just for lols um and there's nothing wrong in telling a story about a horrible person because you know that there will be consequences and i think that's important is characters like these have to have consequences um in some shape or form at the end um so i don't think the character is wrong to be explored I just think that given this is the first window into Vampire 5th Edition, it's too hard, too fast. You know, it's... it As one of the mandatory characters there that, to be played, as the way they wrote this character has to be played for this playtest, it's just like, I get what they're trying to do, which is to present these are horrible characters which ultimately get their comeuppance at the end of the adventure uh spoiler alert it's just too much spoiler alerts indeed yeah i mean fine but it's (laughs) i think spoiler alerts are mostly not needed anymore on this but 
it's just it's just too much too too fast. If they wanted to include it in there, my initial opinion was there needed to be options. There should have been more scenes. Like if you wanted that type of character uh, that to explore a character that that has does horrible things you can you can do you can look at variants of it and leave it up to the players at the table the gm at the table to pick because players can imagine things far more horrible than any shit we can ever write for adventures trust me like (laughs) from running from running from running i'll go back to because it's always the classic adventure to to work that out terrible tale of james magnus is suggestive of the the sexual undertone of the relationship between the ghosts in that story. But you don't need to explicitly describe in the gritty, in gritty little minutiae in the flashbacks the, what the ghosts are projecting into the characters' heads. You don't need to do that. You, can, you only need to say one or two words very subtly, and the players will fill in the blanks for you. That, that is classic Hitchcock. And the players will even come to conclusions that you had never even thought of and weren't even in the story to begin with. Like, the last time I ran it, the players came out out of that game thinking, James Magnus is a people trafficker. And I was like, I can see the, I can see the, 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 the conclusion of where it comes from and how they got there, but it's not written that he, he is that. I certainly did not say he is that but I can see where they were thinking and how they got there. And that's a perfectly fine conclusion. And I'm glad the players came up with that because that shows that they're willing to go, that's what he is, subject because we have brought that subject to the table ourselves. So I think they needed more options for the Amelina character or a variant. or So you can have extra scenes like you can chop and change because it is our only window into the game right now everyone wants to play it meaning if everyone wants to try it out a good portion are going to go is this really what vampire fifth edition's about because otherwise uh, i don't want to know so yeah that's my opinions on it i do have some opinions on the framing of the character though Mm-hmm. So in the descriptions of amelina the first things we learn about her is that she likes feeding on young vampires by that they mean my reading of that my interpretation is recently embraced because the ventry feeding restriction doesn't restrict restrict the the uh, doesn't have a doesn't influence the, uh, a restriction on the type of vampires they can feed on so i but the way they wrote that and the way they wrote about how she feels on feeding on young vampires, about the vitality and life that it gives her and so forth. They brought up the sexual undertone of that as well. That frames the rest of her feeding. And given previous material in the Vampire the Masquerade books from every edition, that then influences how you interpret her feeding on on children and young people in general because you then go well she's sexual in that way is it sexual for her in the way she feeds on these children the text for the character is does not say one way or the other it just says she feeds on them it doesn't say so we're having to take our interpretation of what the kiss is and how vampires feed and the influence it has on on the victims 
on the person being fed from, it colours that already. So I can see how that can lead us to go that her feeding on children is has that issue. But if they were more exact and precise in their language, and I, I like to say this, uh, more verbose in their language and less conversational. I think mm-hmm. the way that some, some things just don't be conversational how you talk about it. Be precise and exact. Uh, say what you mean, because then there is no room for misinterpretation. She could easily have been presented in numerous ways that she is either feeding as if she is the lion that chases after the uh, the, the antelope calf, you know, feeds on the young, the weak. But the way she... It's a distinct difference in how she treats her two methods of feeding. One is for pleasure. One is completely as an animalistic predator. Or they could have gone another route, which is they could have could have presented her as being motherly to the children. Uh, that that she approaches and she does that kind of like she's a she's that that perversion and inversion of the relationship between a mother and child. Mm, yeah. And that's a yeah, very dark and very interesting way to uh, take that sort of character. And yes. let's be honest here, guys, that would have been a more interesting character than oh, she's just a pedophile. Yeah, and that's um, and that's also it gives you a way to contrast her two mechanisms of feeding because you can then see that her feeding on young vampires, vampires were still uh, filled with a remnant of their humanity and their vitality. It means that for her, then, her feeding on vampires is an escape from her curse of feeding on more on particular mortals. So you can then better understand why she she does look for young vampires because she's it's, it's an escape from the only way she has to feed, feed on mortals. But we didn't get that. We didn't get that in the text. That is something that the writers of at White Wolf need to learn is that they need to be in some places conversational text is fine other places where you you start delving into mature content and you do want to present characters be exact be precise and we can then well no we don't we don't have to misinterpret it but we know exactly what they're saying and the intent is there and then we don't get into this whole issue of Oh, everyone at White Wolf's clearly edgelords. Yeah, certainly. Looking at the the playtest material, the technical writing of the rules section, there's two different PDFs. You have the rules and you have the adventure. The rules section is pretty clear overall, um, and it's very easy to, like, you know, read through, get all the information you need. But the adventure itself, yes, really has that conversational tone. Um, One thing I was complaining to you earlier, uh, Chris, was that they use, like, shit and fuck as a lot of their adjectives, and... We have a we have a very nice English language here. We should try to be using a lot more, uh, you know, variety and adjectives in the language. It's just not as uh, detailed and intelligent as I'm used to uh, seeing uh, from a lot of uh, the more recent World of Darkness and Chronicles of Darkness material. Mm. But yes, um, uh, Chig, do you have any uh, any strong opinions on this or differing uh, insights? Oh, no, you guys have, have covered it very well. Um, I agree with you completely. The character should be, if not completely redone, then removed from the playtest. Sorry for groups who have more than four members, I yeah. guess. One, yeah, so so uh, 
White Wolf did on their official blog put out a, uh, a blog post kind of talking about the playtest a little bit, some of the feedback they got, and um, kind of just talking about uh, giving giving an FAQ, basically, about different aspects. Uh, specifically, they did talk about Amelina, and they said that, in their opinion, she is not a pedophile. Um, I don't really agree with that. We actually did contact uh, White Wolf for some clarification on that, and they got back to us and kind of explained their stance. Still not sure I agree with it. I think what they really should have done with that blog post, though, is actually just kind of say, like, oh, hey, we understand that this character isn't right for every group, and then just give an additional extra character. You know, someone who's completely different, exploring some different uh, aspects of the vampiric condition. Or keep the same character and change the feeding restriction. Change change the reasoning. If, 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 if their line is, we don't see this as pedophilia, we see it as X, then you can change that to say, and you can also change it so that X is represented by feeding on A, B, well, and C instead of children. And that feeds into what I was saying about the difference of how this character sees feeding in different ways. And that was actually in part of their response to us was, you know, something they did say is that you know the character could have been written with alternate um feeding uh restrictions that worked out in the same way exactly yeah specifically chig specifically they said maybe feeding on the elderly which was an idea of yours which is both horrible and kind of interesting which is a uh, vampire that has a, an old folks home has a yeah. nursing home right yeah they they uh the character has an orphanage or an orphanarium or whatever and their charges or they don't they're not the people who are on paper running it but they they run it they have it um so their charges are basically their herd to use older edition terminology so they go in they drain the kids in the night and they leave so yay mm-hmm. super gross but hey there you go so my suggestion was well if you want to you know have a character whose feeding restriction is they feed on you know the the overlooked and the sick then have someone who owns a uh an uh, assisted living facility for you know the elderly yes. yeah that way i mean it, it goes back to what chris was saying earlier about you know the the predator on the, the savannah who picks off the sick and the old and it's i mean it adds a, a lot of you know sadness to the game yes. you know these, these people that are that are put away and forgotten by society by their families on top of you know all of that they've had they've had in theory rich full lives but now they're they're tossed aside they're forgotten and they're food for a monster yeah the other thing uh the other idea i had um is you could look at the is it the morbus bloodline from requiem they're only able to feed on people that are ill with some sort of disease or infection. You could clearly see this character feed on, it could be a home for the terminally ill. And then that, again, completely changes the dynamic of this character. Like, yeah, they're not old or young, but they are sick, terminally sick. Sure, and the hospice. Exactly. And it changes, like, some people go, no, the vamp, this character, you know, other characters, the other player characters go, no, you're still a monster, you're feeding on people that have no ability to defend themselves and have no choice in it. But at the same time, I mean, 
you can't deny that maybe the 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 Amal, uh, the Amelina character is very selective on exactly who she's feeding on because she she picks people who you know she can help in her own way or at least it helps justify her feeding and that feeds back into why she feeds on young vampires then that dico- that dichotomy of feeding on young vampires versus feeding on the terminally ill is more pronounced you have dead people who are the closest thing to living versus people who are living who are the closest thing to dying yeah that's good but yeah i mean the response we got in the email was they should have had more options and that's what we said have more options i mean this is your first time presenting this game system they went too grim dark too fast yeah certainly certainly that's my new film too grim dark too fast uh starring vin diesel <laughs> as um as horus and uh and uh the rock as um as uh, yeah <laughs> yeah um uh okay um did we want to cover the other um issue with the playtest which was a use of terminology i think we kind of need to yes yeah yeah um I don't know, Chris, you want to cover that? Okay, so one of the uh, compulsions um, for the Bruja character is... So, Mike, compulsions are basically um, how the character acts in response to having their hunger, their frenzy being triggered, isn't it? Uh, yeah, specifically their, their hunger. So one of the compulsions reads as triggered. That's the label it's been given. And the character, and then the description is that the character uh, reacts in a, a vi- is outraged and disgusted, or, or, or some such, and, and acts in a violent manner towards that source. The problem with that is, and why everyone, why a good portion of people disliked it, is that triggered as a term in uh, when we get into subjects of. I guess social justice and and a lot of stuff going on in in gaming circles these days. Triggered is far too loaded a term. Personally, the the the, the accepted psychological definition of triggered, which means something some something in your past which has in some way mentally and psychologically scarred you, that memory by something in the modern day is is brought back to you. Thus you are triggered and you have a flashback to those feelings. It's all to do with post-traumatic stress. So that obviously has implications to people and how they react to things around them. And if it brings back memories of, of something bad that happened to them, whether it's war, whether it's due to someone dying, uh, that they knew like it's a horrific accident or stuff like that's happened to them, such as unfortunately things like rape and, and, uh, other acts uh, committed against them. Abuse and now, now, unfortunately, triggered as a word has also been perverted in the way when people go, well, I'm, I'm triggered by this. And it's like, well, so to me, there's a very definite usage of the word and that triggered is different to I feel uncomfortable about this. Triggered has a very, to me, is more than just feeling uncomfortable about this, top, about this topic. It's like, you know, you, you have a post-traumatic stress disorder reaction to this thing. Not, uh, it seems in bad taste. There's, there's, a, there's a clear line. And because of that confusion, that, that misuse of, that, of, of the word 
triggered as a term. That's where we get the the problems of the way that trigger gets gets used in a derogatory manner by people that fill kind of like Gamergate, red pill communities and so forth. So we wanted clarity, essentially, from White Wolf about what, why they use this term. And we did get a response, didn't we, Mike? We did. And essentially, they were just saying, okay, uh, we just felt that we're using trigger in the same form as kind of like setting off, or that's sort of a, uh, a usage. And specifically, they quoted this uh, Neil Gaiman article, uh, or essay that he wrote a while ago about um, a similar sort of uh, psychological triggering, which again, is not like the traditional uh, psychology definition. And I actually remember when, when that article came out and a lot of people weren't happy with it. So I can see again why people are not uh, really psyched about that that term overall. But uh, I mean, White Wolf was extremely clear to us that they were not using it in any sort of like Gamergate red pill manner um in fact specifically they say we don't support those people and they're awful which you know it's good 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 thing to clarify so that's kind of the case uh, i'm pretty sure based on what we've heard from some of the uh v5 designers that the, the triggered term is just going to go away it's just going to be replaced by something else um so that really probably won't be an issue and um yeah that's that's pretty much where we left things I think a lot of these issues, I think we'll, we'll see. I think this might actually be, again, this is, we're going to get some of these things occur a few times, I think, with the use of language. Because White Wolf is now a European company. It is staffed by people from countries such as Sweden, from Spain, from other parts of Europe, and from, like, you know, the US, you know, the, some of the freelance writers tools are going to come from other places. So given this is the first material that came out that comes from, we uh, we have to admit, you know, from someone that is not a native, uh, a native English speaker, not a native English writer, I would say, to be fair, you know, there are going to be missteps due to uh, the use of language because of, um, of, social and cultural differences okay uh just in how they feel a word is used when they use english versus how native english speakers use it generally and it's just going to happen i mean why wolf has never been perfect in dealing with other countries in the past when it was an american company with with predominantly american writers writing about countries and places they've never been to ever in their lives so i think we just have to accept that and sometimes um, I think I think the thing is just to accept that some if there is a misstep, you know, reach out for clarity. And I feel like you know from you know we've met Martin in person, and I feel from his from the response we've got as well. Sometimes you can you can chalk these things up to just you know it's just a, it's just a stupid mistake, and they should you know it just needed an extra pass by some other readers to go really really. And then and it's like, did you really mean that? And then and then it can be shipped out. I know they're wanting to get a quick turnaround on playtesting. And they want to basically get people excited and drum up support. But it just needs to be a bit more careful, really. With the blog post, it's just like, sometimes all you really do need to say is, yeah, we made a, mistake, a really stupid mistake. Sorry. You don't need to say actually much more than that. Uh, so that's my final conclusion on it all. People are free to disagree with me. 
Um, and uh, yeah. <laughs> so I think that wraps that up. So we can go on and talk about Onyx Path and some of the great stuff they're doing over there. Yay. And uh, yeah, so we haven't... Uh, we haven't had a show that was not recorded at like World of Darkness Berlin or following that or at some convention in a while. So quite a bit has come out from uh, Onyx Path. And yeah, there's some pretty cool stuff. Uh, we've got Thousand Years of Night, which is a Vampire the Requiem Elders book. Uh, Chris, you're our uh, resident Requiem expert. Are you uh, pretty psyched for this? Yes, I'm hoping this will be kind of... Because I've not delved into it yet. So I'm expecting content that's a bit similar to... Um... Gilded Cage and Council of Provision from Masquerade that came out right at the tail end, which to me always kind of read like Requiem books anyway. Um, <laughs> should be a good read. Uh, what else have we got coming out? Uh, Changeling, the uh, Dreaming 20th Anniversary Anthology. So that's a, um, is that a book of stories? It's a book of short stories, as a matter of fact. It is in my to-read pile, but it is the fourth thing down because I am behind. Yes, but uh, based on uh, the the authors' names, it looks really nice. So I'm looking forward to getting to it. What have we got for? We've got something for Exalted. Okay. Yeah, I just put it in there. Uh, Tomb of Dreams came out, which is the Exalted Jumpstart. So if you want to check out Exalted and not have to read a 700 page book with like 350 pages of charms and magical spells, then you're playing the wrong game because that is Exalted, my friends. <laughs> that is true. That's so true. Um, um, but but yes, this is much more much more accessible. And uh, people seem to be really excited about it. So I figured I'd just kind of point people in that direction in case they uh, want to check out Exalted 3rd Edition. Cool. Uh, okay. Uh, what's the other thing we've got here? Vampire, the Dark Ages 20th Anniversary Companion. Okay. What's the companion meant uh, contain? I have no idea. But uh, <laughs> I do know. I do know. That it was developed by uh, Matthew Dawkins, who's a very good writer and a great developer. So there's definitely some cool stuff there uh, to check out for Dark Ages. And in addition to that, we also have the Dark Eras Companion, which came out uh, at pretty much the same time. Uh, and that gives us a bunch more rules and uh, alternative settings for Chronicles of Darkness in uh, different timelines and uh, different game settings. So, so that's a really cool one. Do you really not know what's in the, the Dark Ages Companion? I have no idea. Oh, okay. Um, it's got some setting material um, for different cities in the world, like Rome and Mogadishu, places like that that are not, you know, standard V20 uh, vampire Dark Ages settings. Because, uh, you know, you don't really have any information. Well, you have some, but not really on setting a campaign in Rome or Mogadishu or, you know, I mean, Constantinople, I guess, to get a source book previously. That's actually really cool because I would love to have a, um, I'd love to have a look at that because uh, extra information, because that book then combined with, um, you know how we did the V, we did the Vampire the Dark Ages Primer series, I think. Uh, and we finish off with how you could actually use all that information to run Requiem in the Dark Ages. So that kind of information for like Rome would be perfect for for also for Requiem uh, for that, or really any of the um, you know Chronicles of Darkness games if you want to do historical stuff. So it just sounds like a good book for everyone, not just. Well, I mean, that's 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 part of it. There's more. There's more to it than just you know the setting information. Yeah. There, there's also yeah. you know obviously plot hooks and stuff like that. New mysteries. 
will never actually resolve. Um, there is a guide to domain building and how to treat your servants, uh, things like how to hire servants, what to do with them, what what the difference is between a uh, you know head of the household and a major domo and stuff like that. Um, and uh, finally, super exciting, um, a study on Dark Ages warfare. Oh, cool. So if you really wanted to have, you know, a, a Dark Ages huge battle, then you can, you know, figure out how that's how that was actually done. Tangentially to Dark Era's companion for Chronicles of Darkness, the um, Kickstarter's coming up soon for Dark Era's 2. So that is another book of Dark Era, um, you know, time period settings for Chronicles of Darkness. So seems like everyone just wants uh, historical settings for every game going currently. I mean, there's a lot of cool ideas out there, so it's pretty great that they're exploring all of them. Mm. And in addition to that, we've also gotten a new Werewolf the Apocalypse novel, which is Song of Unmaking by Bill Bridges. Uh, he previously wrote two other werewolf novels, and they're pretty sweet. So if you uh, want more of that stuff, there you go. Cool. And uh, finally, just kind of wrapping things up, uh, Bonite Studios has made some pretty cool announcements. Uh, they have a giant LARP event coming up in Tampa Bay, uh, which is Tampa by Night. And uh, it's going to be at the end of September, beginning of October. So that's definitely something to check out. And in addition to that, they will be coming out with a new Changeling the Dreaming uh, Mind's Eye Theater LARP rules. Um, it's supposed to be kind of a companion book. So you can just use the rules in either their werewolf or their vampire uh, material, uh, th- those rule books, uh, and just kind of play changing characters uh, in those venues. So pretty cool stuff. I will buy it because I'm a completist. All right, good. Well, Chig, you're going to need to buy either vampire or werewolf to get the full rules. No, no. I would have to buy either vampire <laughs> or werewolf if I ever planned on playing it. I will purchase it so that I can continue to say I own every Changeling the Dreaming book. Okay, very good, very the, good. I have the two original uh, LARP books. I've never LARPed, but I could. Yo, there was someone that was running uh, The Shining Host at World of Darkness Berlin. He apparently had like something like a 35-person LARP there. I'm not surprised. It was always very, very popular. Um, yeah, it was Probably a big deal. the second most popular after Vampire. Mm. At least Interesting. from what I was given to understand from my contact with the filthy LARP community. Whoa, Which whoa, I say whoa, with love. whoa. whoa. Oh, okay. All right. It was an endearing, exactly. <laughs> endearing adjective. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So I think that wraps up the uh, kind of news segment here. And uh, let's jump on over to a very exciting One World of Darkness segment. Classic World of Darkness. All right, Chick. You've been waiting 22 years for this day. <sighs> Man, it is finally It's here. here. It's and- finally here. An awesome, playable, epic version of Changing the Dreaming. Hit me with yeah. it. Hit me with your opinions, Chig. It is the best Changing the Dreaming book that has ever been written, or possibly ever will be written. I couldn't say for sure. But um, yeah, I am a wholehearted fan of this uh, this version of Changeling. The 20th anniversary edition is a masterpiece. Indeed, indeed. And uh, it has quite a uh, lengthy list of authors. Uh, specifically, it was developed by Black Hat Matt McFarland. But uh, in the list of authors, we've seen a lot of cool returning uh, writers, such as you know Jackie Quesada, Nikki Rhea. And uh, yeah, it's just a really epic, interesting, and uh, well-put-together book. And uh, I'm pretty psyched to dig into it here. 
so Chig, what's what's new? What's new about this book? Um, well, a lot of things. <laughs> um, the meta plot has been updated. The uh, rules have been updated. The kiss have been updated. The courts, the magic system, glamour and banality, everything is everything that was old is new again in changing yeah, yeah. the dreaming. So, I mean, this is very interesting because when the 20th anniversary stuff first came out and... Chris, you probably remember this. Like when when V twenty came out, they didn't change a lot. Uh, a lot of the text was just you know grabbed from revised edition, and might have been massaged a little bit. And uh, there were a lot of uh, rules that didn't even get changed. Like merits and flaws were just copy pasted overall. But this seems to be a uh, I wouldn't say a divergence, but a a large uh, uh, you know improvement overall a, a new iteration on changeling uh and not as much of a uh you know copy paste to the past now there's a there's a very very strong reason for that changeling never got a revised edition mm-hmm. so every other world of darkness game that i can think of maybe not wraith does wraith get a revised edition nope okay uh <laughs> well maybe wraith 20 when it comes out will be just as uh, equally neato mosquito uh, we'll see. I mean, it would be awesome, but uh, I don't think it's going to change too, too much. But maybe see. we'll see. Um, but yeah, Changeling never got a never got beyond second edition. So the rules changes and everything that happened to all the other game lines between second edition and third edition never happened in Changeling. The meta plot didn't really have much to advance beyond any other second edition game. There were revised era books put out for Changing the Dreaming that. Put, you know, advance the story a couple of years, but they were very few and far between. So, yeah, Changeling Twentieth is very much a different game than than Changeling Second, but I don't know if it's more different than Vampire Twenty is from Vampire Second. Okay, yeah, yeah, I believe that. Where do we want to begin? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess it'd be good to talk about the meta plot first because that's what you know shows up first in the book. So, yeah, the the meta plot um, has moved both forward in time as one would expect since it's you know 20 years after the first book came out but it's also moved back in time because the i know right because the uh the uh origins of the fey were always kind of murky and left a little bit clouded and you know they were the children of the tuatha but what did that really mean we'll get to that someday well someday has finally come and because it was a, a game book developed by black hat matt and he for some reason, loves my least favorite version of the Changelings, the Dark Ages Fae, he has managed to successfully backdoor Dark Ages Fae into Changing the Dreaming. Ooh, I mean... If I could take a moment, it is the worst part yeah. of Changeling the Dreaming 20th edition because it really doesn't fit. They are very, very different games. Like all They are, they are. They're, they're, it's apples and oranges. But you know what? Whatever it's hinted in a number of places that no, that was that was for real where we came from, but it's your, it, you know, it's also changeling, so whatever. I don't believe it. That's not how it happened in my game. <laughs> okay, good, good. So we can move on from there we, and jump into the rest of the meta plot, right? We can. The meta plot has moved past the nineteen, the mid nineteen nineties, which is good because we have also moved past the mid nineteen nineties. Music is good again. Yay. 
So there are maybe three paragraphs that cover basically the entirety of the war in Concordia, um, the disappearance of King David, all the plot threads that were left dangling at the end of uh, the previous Changeling books. And it can basically be summed up as, meh, some stuff happened. <laughs> okay. Also, some bad guys came back. That was neat. They're jerks. We don't like them. Uh, then it gets to some more modern day uh, information, introduces uh, the idea that, uh, hey, maybe glamour is getting even harder to come by than we thought it was going to be. So we're going to introduce some austerity, which is a, a fun little nod to uh, modern real world politics. It provides conflict in a game and, you know, stories are about conflict and all that. So, hey. Yep. So in addition to that, um, it mentions that in the backstory in 1969, when man landed on the moon... Uh, of course, the gates to Arcadia were thrown open and the she came back, which worked out mostly okay-ish for a game that was published in, you know, 1995, because at that point, 1969 was, what, 26 years before? But now, now we're pushing 50 years ago. So if you have a character who did not exist on the planet until 50 years ago, by now, they're old. Even if, you know, they stayed in a magical, you know, time-free land of the changelings, like a freehold where time doesn't pass if you're a changeling or a mortal who's been enchanted, then they're still 50 years old. And we nobody, let's be honest here, very few people want to play a character who is 50 years old in a standard modern day game. Maybe if you're playing an elf, but you're not playing an elf because this isn't D&D. So, um, in addition to the 1969 moon landing, uh, there have been other glimmers which have allowed the Fae to keep coming back from uh, Arcadia for whatever reason. It's still left unclear as to why they were you know, either expelled or decided to come back. Um, including, but not limited to, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, which is 20 years closer. Uh, the ending of Apartheid, which is a date that I should have looked up before recording this, but I don't recall. Mm-hmm. I think it was 1990, I want to say two. Look that up, guys. It's fun. And uh, the election of U.S. President Barack Obama. And no, for real, that is that is listed as one of the uh, official hopeful uh, coming together of the world dreaming things that uh, that change reality enough to allow she to return. It was, okay, I can see it. I can see it. It was 94. The date was 94. I was Close. off by two years. I feel okay with that. In the history of humanity, two years isn't that much. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you for looking that up. Um, in addition, uh, though not given a capitalized name like Glimmers, uh, which allowed the uh, she to return, uh, the door to the dreaming swings both ways, and 9-11 uh, allowed the Thalane and other dark kin uh, ancient uh, foes of the changeling and uh, children of the Fomori uh, to return to the world. So um, this came as a surprise to me because the Thalene were introduced in the Shadow Court, which was a book that came out well in advance of uh, 2001. Okay, sure. Why not? I'll allow it. Yeah, I guess. And let's see some other changes. Um, while still very much a game, at least in this book, focused on the Western world, which is, you know, primarily America, United States thereof, and not other parts of America. 
Um, there is a huge section of the the uh, first part of the book that uh, goes around the globe and touches on the rest of the world, which, to be fair, is something that Changeling tried to do in the past, but as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, did not do very well. Yeah, I mean, I, I read through the section, and you know, when it says it goes around the world, it goes around the English-speaking world mostly. Um, like, there's the Africa section, which is like maybe a quarter of a page, and just talks about Ethiopia and Sudan, and I don't even think the author read the Wikipedia page. I'm not sure. That might have actually been something that they just pulled in from a previous edition, a previous source book. But I don't believe they ever spoke about uh, Ethiopia or the Sudan, including in the um, Kith book issue before. Aside from, yeah. aside from saying, hey, the Oba are here. But uh, yeah, the, the entire continent of South America gets exactly one paragraph. And it says, hey, we don't really know what's going on here. Go check it out if you're interested. So if you want to set your your uh, story down in South Africa, I'm sorry, South America, hey, good luck. It's a blank canvas. Do whatever you want. But yeah, yeah, it's it's like I said before, it's they tried previously and it was it was just notably bad whenever they left uh, North America. Um, the uh, the source book that covered uh, the United Kingdom is. Is, is just laughably awful. But, uh, <laughs> okay, carry on. Explain. Amuse I me. I don't believe that anybody who wrote um, that source book had ever actually left, say, Atlanta, Georgia, in their life. They, they may have have, have left um, the downtown area, but they definitely had never ever been overseas. Um, it, mm. It's it's very much a a pip pip cheerio kind of thing, with also hey there's some Celts out there because hey they liked changelings or they liked fairies right, mm. yeah it's it's just not good man <laughs> it's mm. it's yeah if you're okay. that interested and it covers England and Scotland and Wales. <laughs> yeah, I can ima- I, I I can already imagine what kind of quaint kind of views they have of the locals and how we what we do. Um and it'll be very interesting to read and contrast it to say, I don't know, Shadows of the UK for for New World of Darkness when that came out. I think um, you absolutely should. It came out uh 20 years ago in 1997, so yeah. It's <laughs> it right. is not the highest quality. Anyway, carrying on. <laughs> so yeah, they they did update the setting. They updated the the meta plot. There's a lot going on in the world. Um, the Parliament of Dreams that was suspended at the end of the previous game line is back in session, which is great. Um, it kind of moves the the inherent conflict away from commoner versus uh, noble uh, into a more uh, kind of a, a not a cold war but a, a shadow war between the uh, the the kithane the changelings the the creatures of the dreaming and uh, the now returned dark kin and the creatures of uh, the Thalane, the creatures of the Fomorians. So there's 
there's conflict. There's still it's changeling, so there's still politics. There's still haughty nobles and uh, uppity, you know, lower class uh, commoners. But there's a lot. To, there's a lot to chew on there. A lot of a lot of meat. Yep, sounds pretty good. And uh, talking of meat, there's some pretty meaty new rules. Uh, and Chig, as you noted here in the notes, the big thing, of course, is that your seeming is no longer tied to your physical age. So, for example, you can have a uh, childling that's, uh, you know, in the body of a very old person. Um, so you can have that kind of individual that seems old, but actually has a childlike wonder in many ways. Right. And you can have grumps who are, you know, in young bodies, and they're just like, ugh. I'm a cranky 12-year-old. Yeah, I mean, it's it's more tied to your personality and how you interact mm-hmm. with the world rather than, oh, you're younger than 12. Congratulations, you're a childling. In a year when you turn 13, you're going to get a ton of banality. Sucks to be you. Enjoy it while you can. It also, which, you know, kind of takes away from the creepiness of the game a little bit because, you know, not to not to linger too heavily on the whole pedophilia thing that we touched on earlier with the uh the uh, fifth edition vampire playtest it was really difficult sometimes to justify why you had one grump who was hanging around with a bunch of uh you know, one you know older guy you know older in the previous versions being 35 and up which makes me very very old now um hanging out with you know some prepubescent children that were not related to him going on adventures i mean it didn't highlight it in previous editions, but it was there, and it was kind of creepy. They've, elim- they've okay. eliminated. Could they fix? They've that? totally eliminated that. So, good job, writers. I appreciate it. Um, in addition, they've added uh, some new rules for seemings. Um, there's not one that is inherently better than uh, others, which was the case with uh, childlings in previous editions. Um, much like in second edition, werewolf. If you wanted to have five and all your power stats you could totally do that by choosing the right uh auspice and uh breed and tribe so childling used to make you way more powerful than grump in previous editions now it's a flat plus one to either glamour or willpower or you can choose if you're the the middle uh seeming wilder which is fun. Mm-hmm. In cool. addition, uh, seemings now also include banality trigger- triggers, banality triggers, uh, which describe unique ways unto your seeming uh, in which you are affected by and gain banality, uh, which is, you know, for everybody who's ever played Changeling knows, the um, weight of the world uh, destroying your, your fey soul. So if, for instance, you are playing a childling, no matter if you're a nine-year-old or a 90-year-old, if you try to avoid a new idea or a new experience, then you will gain banality because part of being a childling is looking at the world with eyes of wonder and trying new things is part of that. And if you say, no, I'm not going to try something new, then you are denying that very essential part of your being and by denying yourself you're inviting in banality i like it chig i like it so let's move on over to the kiths because they've expanded quite a bit from the uh, previous editions and the uh, previous core books ridiculous yeah we have all the uh... (laughs) so i mean in the uh the original core book they had it was just the boggins the eshu knockers puka red caps satyrs the she of 
many different stripes. The Slua, is that you pronounce that one? Yep. And the Trolls, of course. But now you've included uh, many, many more, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Most of them are returning from other books. Um, The Clericans, the Piskies, the Selkies uh, were all in supplements for first and second edition. They've been brought back. In addition, they have added the Gilly-Doo, which are the, the weird little plant guys from the aforementioned uh, British Isles source book, the Merfolk, uh, the Oba, the River Hags, um, and for the first time in English, uh, the Corrid from the French source book, and the Morganid, which is a different kind of mermaid, from the German source book. Mm-hmm. Sweet. They've also added two brand new ones, the Wicktail and the Wolpertingers, which never existed before. They're just new versions of new new splats you can play. Which is awesome. Because the game needs to, yep. you know, grow and expand. Hmm. Um they've all been all the kiss from all the books and all the new ones have well the new ones haven't been cleaned up, but the, the ones that appeared in previous versions uh have been cleaned up. Um, especially the ones from the old supplements. Uh, for instance, Clericans now have a single frailty. Uh, they like collecting things rather than a, a weird mishmash handful collection of them, uh, which they had in previous editions where they were uh, alcoholics who liked to dress in earth tones and also, I believe, enjoyed collecting things. They had three kind of frailties, but not one specific one. Um, other things that have been cleaned up, uh, the Naka flaw, uh, is mechanical in nature. So while the knockers who are the craftsmen, the mad inventors of the Cathane, um, have all, have always had a flaw that they could not create anything perfect. Everything that they made had at least, no matter how well they rolled on their, on their creation crafting role had a flaw. Um, unfortunately, they, the clarification is not, in my opinion, great because they've made it a mechanical flaw now. And by mechanical, I mean game mechanics. So anytime you use a knocker invention in a stressful situation, it has a 1 in 10 chance of breaking down. Which, okay, sure. Um, that was always more of a, you know flavor or color thing in previous editions but now let's say that you know you have a knocker who works for the local baron and is in charge of building his you know fleet of robotic horses or whatever to bring the she knights into battle on every time they fight there's 10 percent of his cavalry goes down yeah that's kind of a problem um it's, it's a needless addition in my opinion but whatever you can you can take it or you can leave it just say that you know no matter how well they create something there's always a flaw yeah the the, the yeah. horse mechanism that he created for the the local duke farts occasionally when you know it's least advantageous to do so something like that something fun not just 10 percent of the time it just breaks because that's boring yeah yeah i can see that um on the plus side uh, the Puka frailty, um, is, which is Puka Lai, um, is uh, now something that's actually playable. Uh, in previous editions, it was just stated, Puka can't tell the truth unless they roll a, a willpower roll. Yeah, 
so most people just played them as like it's opposite day exactly and it became so tiring <laughs> that was never the 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 idea the point behind they don't tell the truth and the the kith book covered this fairly well however i think they only ever published maybe six copies of that kith book because it was super hard to find <laughs> so a lot of people never got to see it so yeah it's Puka don't tell the whole truth. Puka, uh, Puka embellish the truth. It's not Puka say the opposite of what they mean. They don't say yes when they mean no, because that, again, is boring. And that's not what Changeling mm. is about. Um, the, the So, okay, we're going to get to the list. And on the downside, um, the Satyr uh, birthright it's kind of rapey, you guys. I know it says, it specifically says it's not rapey, but it's kind of rapey. Right, okay. Is it Cthulhu Tech levels? I don't think it's quite that bad. No, no, no. So, <laughs> the Seder, um are the dreams of passion, right? Mm-hmm. Whenever they're around, people are having a good time. Uh, they're the life of the party. I mean, they're also... Uh, their passions can be things like, you know, I'm very passionate about studying or I'm very passionate about the music that I play, stuff like that. It it, it, it very much says it's not always about sex. But everyone yeah. played it about sex. Well, oh. everybody, not only did everybody play it about sex, but one of their birthrights is it's called Gift of Pan. And when a satyr indulges herself in one of her passions, often sexual, but also artistic and creative, those around her also caught up in the frenzy. Oh, okay. Faye, yeah, Faye and mortal alike join her in dancing and debauchery. Now, it, it goes on to say in the very next sentence, the gift of Pan doesn't force anyone to partake in sex or any other activity, but removes inhibitions that might normally keep someone from indulging. So it's not going to force you to want to join in the orgy, but it's going to make it so that you don't necessarily not want to. Now, I want to point out <laughs> that they're not tying seeming to age really helps in this particular birthright. Mm. Because in previous editions, mm. you could have childlings who had this on their character sheet. And that is a super double dip of not good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, yeah. okay. So, Chig, what about the Selkies? I'm glad you asked. The Selkies um, were another kith that was introduced in one of the supplements, one of the first three supplements, I believe. Um, they were not uh, a core book kith previously. Um, their frailty is that uh, they have a seal skin coat. And if they put it on, they can change, they can, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, they are um, shapeshifters. Good lord. <laughs> Um, and they are really, you know, they turn into seals, just like the old stories. Yay. Anyway, yeah, so they have the skin, and it's just a, a skinned seal's skin that they wear. Um, and if it is just, and their frailty is, if they lose their seal skin, it can be destroyed, which kills them. Hmm. So the own so other 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 kiss frailties are like I like to party too hard or 
I like to steal things, or I can't ever tell the truth, or I have to help people when they are true when they are when they have needs. The Selsky's frailty is you can steal my coat and that might kill me. If so mm. they're yeah, their frailty is they can die, which is boring. Yeah, it doesn't add a whole and lot. Also, it's really hard to, to destroy their their skin. So it's boring and difficult to do. Yeah, it's a much better like NPC kind of frailty than for a, for a player character. It doesn't really add to the role playing at all. It just kind of creates this one specific situation where there is only one outcome, which is well, two outcomes: either they live or they die, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, they they either get it back and hey, yay, good job, and they can shapeshift again, or they don't get it back and they're killed, which you know might make for a fun story once. <laughs> but only once if it keeps happening Mm -hmm. then either your storyteller is out of ideas for what to do with you it never happens except for once and you basically don't have a frailty so i i I don't know what the solution here is aside from give them something that isn't quite so lame yep pretty much so moving on moving on um the she have been split in twain which is Kind of nice. Uh, when the she left the autumn world back at the uh, the Sundering, some of them didn't go. This has always been the case, but there's never really been an explanation uh, in game for what that meant. So in the past, all she were very good looking. They, uh, you couldn't use magic to make them look like idiots or humiliate them. You couldn't magic a, a cream pie into their face. And they were doubly affected by banality because they were recently returned from Arcadia and they didn't have uh, centuries of exposure basically built up to survive in the modern banal world. They were hit doubly hard by banality. That makes sense for the she who left, but there was never rules for what you did if you were playing a she who stayed behind. Well, now they have the autumn, the Arcadian she, rather, who play by the, the same rules that have always existed. And they also have the autumn she, which are, and again, here's a little inconsistency. Um, it's noted that how Scathic and Liam are the two houses that stayed behind, but it also says that every house had at least a few who stayed behind or just didn't manage to escape on time or whatever. And it contradicts itself a couple of times, both in the uh, kith list and then later in the house list. But again, that's, that's a minor editing error. I'm sure they'll fix that in post. Um, so mm-hmm. the bottom she, the ones who stayed behind, are still super, super ridiculously good looking. Uh, you still can't use magic to make them look like idiots. Um, and they have their own frailty, which is super fun. It's called adoration. And because they are so good looking and because they are, they have more experience uh, dealing with mortals, um, they can accidentally get stalkers. <laughs> So anytime an Arcadian uh, she uh, has a meaningful interaction with a mortal, which uh, is described as successful use of intimidation, expression, leadership, etc., 
Um, the storyteller rolls against Immortal's willpower against a difficulty equal to the She's glamour rating. So how glamorous you are makes it uh, more difficult for them to avoid. Uh, failure means that the mortal uh, takes an extra interest in the character, which uh, could be anything from, you know, oh, you know, you're at the, the checkout line and you, you know, talk to the, you give a rousing speech to the, the gal checking out your groceries and she gives you a 10% discount or whatever to, oh, yeah, that guy's a super creep and he begins stalking you and taking pictures of you and he becomes obsessed with you and he loves you and why do you not understand that only he can love you so that'll add some story stuff to the game and of course uh yeah so back in the appendix there's the uh, new kits and sub kits you have like the oba and the river hags uh those are pretty cool and uh really this play this book is just filthy with different character options there's so many of them and in fact they also gave us some really cool kith creation rules and uh they're okay you know uh it's nothing like too complex, uh, but it gives you some very nice suggestions for how to make your own kits, uh, including how to balance the affinities and the uh, frailties. And uh, it's pretty cool because they actually give you this nice example of how to uh, create the domovoi of Slavic mythology. So you know what? There's even an extra bonus kith right there that you can Indeed. use. And it's a brand new one too. Yep. And you know, it's not, it's not bad. The rules are okay um they're nothing super crazy but i'm not sure if they're really necessary especially in this book given that it has like 150 or something different splats already included but you know but chig the people wanted it and they've got it so here we go this is true and it was it was promised ages ago that they were going to produce them at some point and congratulations they have finally done so so they are good rules i don't know that i will ever use them but there they are yep well in that case i can just talk about the uh, courts a little bit we of course still have the uh Sealy, and uh they are really just still hidebound monsters and of course the unsealy oppose them and they really still in many ways represent the downtrodden heroes um, different houses don't really ref- reflect this, but the codes do. So that's uh, pretty much what you need to check out before you kind of jump into these two monolithic uh, organizations, if you will. All 13 uh, she houses are in the book, and they have their new updated boons and flaws. Uh, so that's pretty great. And uh, there's also some pretty good information on why they were exiled to Arcadia in the first place, and uh, various factions and societies within each house. Of course, the Shadow Court is back, uh, those being the um, kind of darker fey uh, related to the uh, Thalane. And um, they've been, uh, you know, participating a lot more in uh, changeling politics. And they actually have learned quite a few things from the Occupy movement, Black Lives Matter, and even the uh, Arab Spring, uh, figuring out ways to disrupt Shi rule uh, as they, you know, kind of step out into the light to uh, make their appearance. Yeah, this is, you know, a bad thing because, as Chig mentioned earlier, uh, the Shadow Court is really controlled in a lot of ways by the Thalane, the Darkkin, uh, that came out of that Evanescence, which occurred in the metaplot uh, related to, you know, the, the increased terrorist attacks and, and that sort of thing. So, um, wow, magic is so much better now, you guys. First off, uh, it still uses the Arts and Realms system, which a lot of people have a lot of problems with, but a lot of those problems have been fixed. Um, 
So first, they expanded the list of arts in the core book from six up to 18. Some of those arts, uh, like Kronos and Metamorphosis, are from previous books and should probably have always been in a core book, but were thought of later. So hey, here they are. Congratulations. Uh, some of them are brand spanking new. There are four seasonal arts, uh, autumn, spring, summer, and winter. And there's a whole art about contracts and going making compacts with uh, Fae and other mortals and you know swearing magical oaths and things that have always been part of the game, but have not been part of the magic system and things that they stole, for instance, from uh, Dark Ages Fae. So, hey, you know, I said earlier I didn't like Dark Ages Fae. I like that they stole some of these things from Dark Ages Fae. Um, in addition, Dragon's Ire uh, is an art now. In previous editions, Dragon's Ire was totally there. You might have missed it because it got a paragraph and a half or two. But uh, it's no longer just the not capital A art of fighting so well that you make glamour. It is for real a combat art with, uh, you know damage dealing cantrip blow shit up us and stuff like that so that's nice mm -hmm. it's nice that it's included as a a more prominent section of the of the book because previously people one previous complaint was there's only one combat cantrip which was never true but hey look now there's a whole art just for combat congratulations in addition the crappier arts <clears throat> like infusion <clears throat> uh have been completely removed they are not in this book they do not exist which is good. Uh, also, the Contempt art, which was a Shadow Court art that was literally just anti-sovereign, no longer exists. Which is also good, because it was also garbage. Contrary to previous versions, the realms are still the realms, so they're, they've been cleaned up and clarified, so it doesn't include things like, you know... Things on the wrong lists, basically. In a previous edition, uh, one of the examples for um, prop was a rock, which should have fallen under nature. So they clean that up. The examples actually make sense. But also, if you want to cast a cantrip and you do not have the realm you need to cast it on, hey, you still can. It's just going to cost you some more glamour which is awesome. Yeah, that's a huge fix. It makes the system far more flexible than it had been in previous editions, which is good because Changeling is a game about creativity. It doesn't need to be so locked down as it has been. Yeah, certainly. And really the great thing about the uh, updated, you know, Changing 20th rules is that it's not very unfamiliar. Uh, it's still the ba same basic uh, steps to, you know, use a cantrip, you know, picking your art, picking your different realms, and now if you don't have them, you spend some extra glamour, make your dice pool, choose your bunks, and you're also, you know, your difficulty is affected by, say, banality and your target or the place you're in, and, uh, you know, difficulty adjusted by the bunks. And then you roll away, and you're good to go. Um, so it's it's very familiar to previous players, but there's a lot more examples, certainly, here in the book. Um and it's just, uh, you know, much more clear, but as you said, also more open than it has been in previous editions, which is really just great for, uh, for players overall. Absolutely. And in addition, above and beyond that, they introduced a whole brand new kind of fey magic, unleashing, which again is something that they stole from Dark Ages Fey. So, hey, good job, Dark Ages Fey. Steal more cool stuff like this, less crummy stuff like the backstory. So unleashing is 
if you have an art, but you just want something to happen and you don't have, for instance, you don't have the dragon's ire combat art, as mentioned previously, you have, say, spring or you know contract or something crazy like that or wayfair and you just want you just say i want something bad to happen to that guy i'm going to use my uh wayfair art and i'm going to unleash on him then the uh the new system just says okay great whatever you're going to do you uh you, you follow this new system that we made up and if you if you succeed in your role, whatever you wanted to happen will happen. There will be some negative effects on you. You will get some nightmare dice, which existed in previous editions, but like Dragon's Eye or previously, were kind of downplayed, hidden toward the back of the book, not mentioned very often. And you might go a little crazy, which is fantastic. Again, it, it allows for flexibility and randomness and not wacky randomness. And I love it. I just love it. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's a, definitely a cool change. And it really kind of fits a lot of ways in uh, you know, some other media we've seen. Uh, that's really a changeling where you know these individuals that you know will use that untapped and sort of wild creativity uh, to get things done. Um, but again, it's, it's quite dangerous. And a lot of it's up to really what the storyteller wants to do and how they interpret uh, what might occur. Sure, exactly. And like, like I was saying earlier, say you don't have the, the combat art, you have Wayfair, and you want something, you want to hurt this guy who's attacking your friend, you just unleash Wayfair, and the Dreaming slams him into a wall. Because that's moving him, which is what Wayfair does. It moves things, so it moves him very very swiftly into a wall, and he's knocked out, and your friend is now safe. So you've, rather than using the um, the pre- written steps of a cantrip it just like it says on the tin it unleashes the raw primal essence of the dreaming which is fantastic and something the system has needed for a while maybe about 20 years give or take (laughs) so in addition to all of that in addition to all of that um each art has a section that uh on what happens if you unleash it each cantrip within an art each discrete level of the arts uh, tells you what your realms do, which is usually, but not always, the realm you choose is the target, which is fantastic. Because in previous editions, you had cantrips that said that, as written, required a certain level of a realm to use. If you wanted to summon... Uh, fire, you should have had to have had nature five, which is, you know, pure untouched, I'm sorry, nature one, which is pure untouched raw elemental form. If you didn't have nature one and you took that cantrip, you were basically boned. You couldn't use it as written. Now, if you don't have nature one and you want to summon fire or water or whatever, hey, great. The realm you use is what you're summoning it on. So if you have Bay one, you can summer, summon a uh, rain shower or a you know buckets worth of water onto that onto your buddy over there, which I'm sure is what they always intended. But little clarifications like that really help. In addition, each art uh, discusses what bunks for that art might look like. In previous editions, bunks have been just the most random, ridiculous garbage. 
first edition Changeling actually had a random deck of cards that you drew your bunk from. So it often had absolutely nothing to do with the effect you were going for. So if you wanted to you if you wanted your she character to use the sovereign art to uh, you know make the commoners behave in a uh, a more dignified fashion. Well, you drew your art, you drew your bunk card, and it said you had to eat, you know, shove six donuts in your mouth at once, which is the antithesis of dignity and decorum that you were going for. But that's what the card said you had to do, so that's what you had to do. Also, primal is no longer the uh, you win art. In previous editions, the level four cantrip of primal, Heather Balm or Holly Strike, lets you. Um, Deal aggravated damage or heal damage. That's been split up. It's now two separate arts in two. I'm sorry, two separate cantrips in two separate arts. So good for them for splitting up the ridiculousness. Now that being said, aside from the pyretics art, which lets you create fire, I did not see in the book anywhere that let changelings do aggravated damage using their arts. Um, this includes the art that lets you strike people and things with lightning. Actual, for real, honest to Thor lightning from the sky. Yeah, only, hmm. only deals lethal damage. Yeah, really? That's not consistent with... Does still rules for electrical damage in here? There are still rules for electrical damage in there, which say that it deals <laughs> aggravated damage. So again, yeah. again I'm thinking maybe that's just an editing issue that they'll they'll get to before they, they publish it. This is, this is the pre-release version, mm-hmm. still accepting, you know, editing suggestions yeah yeah definitely but still despite those flaws despite those flaws the arts and realms and magic section is world is leagues ahead of where it was yeah certainly and there's a lot of other rules in here um you know we're kind of running running out of time so we can't really go through all the uh extra uh you know kits and their different um magic rules that they have but there's rules for you know the duantane uh thalane starkin nunahi Pretty much everything that's ever shown up in a Changeling sourcebook, and there have been a lot, are all included in here. So this is really, in many ways, a very, very uh, complete sourcebook. It really, really, truly is. I think, Chig, what we really need to end on is probably one of the most critical issues for for Changeling Dreaming, and that's the uh, revised presentation of both glamour and banality. Absolutely. In previous editions, depending on the author... And the addition, what was glamorous and what was banal changed from book to book, sometimes from chapter to chapter within a book. Um, in this version, which I completely agree with and think it should always have been, it becomes much more personal. What is glamorous? Uh, for, okay, I'll give you an, an example. Uh, in previous editions, uh, glamour was creativity glamour was wonder and magic. Uh, But in previous editions, also science and school were banal because you can't be creative in, in the scientific fields. You can't find wonder in anything that happens at school, which, you know, again, these were second edition games and in second edition games, science equals bad was there across all the different World of Darkness games. Mm, yeah. Yeah. 
they have yeah. they have moved they have <clears throat> glad moved they changed so that. far beyond that. I am so very excited. Um, like I said, they're they're far more personal now, and you can have a character who is a boggin who deals with social interaction who gains uh who gains glamour from going to a city council meeting and interacting mm-hmm. with his uh his fellow citizens and the Demo- and the democratic process or whatever that would be just banal as can be to a uh puka who who gains glamour from going out and dealing with nature and the wilderness mm-hmm. so it, it's very much a more personal thing um specific types of places are no longer inherently banal uh in previous editions like i said science equals bad so every lab everywhere in the world was banal as can be if you went into (laughs) a scientific research facility you were basically signing your own your own death certificate you were going to die yeah literally just listening to this podcast chris will make changelings banal Absolutely. In second edition. He is, <laughs> yeah. He's an academic and a scientist. He's, You're just draining the creativity from him. But Chris And trust me, like, science labs are not banal. Like, exactly. you know they are like you know, you know, to the outsider, yeah. Watching I'll I'll, I'll, I'll give context. Give good context. If you were an outsider looking at what some of the PhD students did in the lab, I mean in the actual lab. Uh, in my uh, research group, uh, what they do, that could look incredibly boring. Like they're just taking powders of minerals and grinding them together and grinding them together and still grinding them together and then cooking them in, a, in an oven. But actually, they're, they could, by sheer perseverance and creativity, find the next generation super you know amazing capacitor that makes you know sixth generation mobile phone technology and that opens up massive amounts of creativity in science in general but to the to a particular person that looks boring as shit and to me that's not even my science what i do every day i look at that and go wow that's great guys you just did shake and bake but they look at what i do which is on a computer coding and coding and picking through lines of bloody fortran code I go that looks completely boring you're sat in front of a computer but i'm like look i've i've, I've i i understand the mechanistic manner in which atoms move that that explains why the shit you make in the lab works and that means we can design the next generation thing so that you're not just having to waste time you can make it in a really direct manner and then to everyone outside that, yeah, that all looks boring as shit. So I like this new personal take on it. And yeah, you're right. Second edition, science equals bad is such a... Oh, Would you yeah, say I really that f- a banal worldview? It's a very oh, banal worldview. Yeah. The writers back then had a very banal view of... of a, a very postmodern banal view of think we were doing because look at it now we have so much great science technology and we're pushing science to the very bleeding edge and finding some weird shit so yeah that's such a great change it may even even in first edition when science equals bad the resurgence the thing that gave so much glamour to the world that the she could return from arcadia was a scientific achievement it was man walking yes so it's always been there you were just not paying attention to it. They were looking at it 
backwards. And now they've moved past that. So it, it's like I said, it's a much more personal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be more difficult for individual storytellers and players maybe than going down a list of are you doing science, you gain banality. Um, but I think in the end, it's not necessarily bad. In fact, it is good. It will be very rewarding. Yes. Um, that being said, canonically, some places are banal. Um, if there is an office building where everybody goes in and they do things that they hate for no good reason all day, they just enter numbers into a computer and they act like yeah, robots. The the Department of Motor Vehicles. I mean, we can all agree <laughs> that that is the worst place ever. You know, for me, it's not my cup of tea, but I guarantee you that, you know, okay, the, the DMV, uh-huh. look at The Simpsons. Patty and Selma, who work at the DMV and take... take mm-hmm delight in tormenting the people who go into the dmv those are some red caps uh, <laughs> right they are, they are loving the frustration they cause they are gaining glamour from these people who have to trudge through their line and oh you checked this box wrong you have to go to the back of that much longer line they are loving it so personally <laughs> Personally, I would house rule that places individually do not have banality ratings, but that's just me. Rules is written. They Okay, I'm sold. I'm sold, Chig. So, Supernaturals, other prodigals as they are called, um, are no longer inherently banal. Just because you're a vampire and you don't change doesn't mean that you are going to kill me if I talk to you for a couple hours, which is nice <laughs> if you want to have a crossover game, I suppose. They have individual banality ratings just like anybody else, just like me or you or whatever. So that's nice. That's a a branching out of things. Uh, That being said, some things are still definitely banal for everybody. If you destroy something that is of the dreaming, then that is always a, a banal act. If you deny your true nature, that is always a banal act. Um, some things are just, if you break an oath, that is always a banal act. Things like that. Things that go against the very nature of the dreaming or creativity in general, which makes sense. It does, however, make war very difficult for the she, because if you kill it, or for the changelings, because if you kill another fae, you get a point of banality. Although I think wilders get exempt from that because they are just some, they're, they're the murder hoboist of all the seemings, apparently. So, yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it for, for Changeling 20. I mean, we, we only kind of touched the surface and went over a lot of the, the broad basic things, but there's a lot in here to dig through. It's almost maybe over 500 pages. It's very it long. Is, uh, uh, there's a lot going on. Hundred and I want to say 75 pages, so I could be off. Yeah, 480 is the end of the, uh, the special thanks at the end. 480 is where so, I am. Yep. <laughs> nice. So... Yeah, it's it's great. It's probably the uh, it's definitely the best edition of Changeling in my opinion, and certainly the uh, edition that has most inspired me to really dig into this game further and uh, you know maybe run it myself. I am definitely once we wrap up our fifth edition game, going to convince my group to play Changeling, even though nice. I one like of it. the guys absolutely despises World of Darkness. I will talk <laughs> him in. All right, cool. So I think that's it, right? That is it. For now. And let's move on over to the secret frequency. He took the stairs.
For months, the city of Vancouver has been terrorized. Vancouverites are no longer safe. He can find you in your home, in your school, or even your workplace. His name is Canuck the Crow, and his mischief knows no bounds. Uh, the bird was actually rescued and cared for by a Vancouver resident, Sean Bergman, and is instantly recognizable by his neighbors uh, due to the bird's orange ankle bracelet worn on its uh, left leg. Uh, Canuck is rather friendly with humans and loves to interact with them, but beginning a few months ago, the bird's actions began to take a more aggressive turn. First came the thefts. Canuck was uh, seen wandering around town stealing supplies. For example, he stole nails from a construction site. Then Canuck flew into McDonald's, terrorizing the patrons and stealing food. Uh, it was only when a woman grabbed the bird that it decided to flee the restaurant. Then, Canuck wandered onto a police crime scene where the police had been just threatened by a kitchen knife. The bird strut over, picked up the knife with its beak, and brandished it in, I quote, menacing manner. Just this week, mail had to be suspended in several neighborhoods of Vancouver because uh, Canadian Post personnel were being attacked by the bird. Thankfully, mail service just uh, began to resume today. So, yeah, this is just odd. Uh, in the real world, this is just, you know, an intelligent, kind of uppity bird. But uh, in the world of darkness, how can we use this idea of Canuck to inspire bizarre happenstance in our games? Oh, right. <laughs> uh, of course, the, the most direct idea, and this is the, the easy softball one right here, is that Canuck is actually a Korax were-raven from uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. He's probably of the, uh, the Corvid breed, so that means that he was born a raven and then turned into a were-raven at uh, maturity. And as a newly shape-shifting animal, uh, they decide to explore the world around them, trying to learn about mankind. And, but of course, the Koraks have a bit of a mischievous streak, so this one happens to be just messing with people. But this could be a very interesting challenge for werewolf uh, packs in the area, or maybe even mages, as they uh, learn about this new mischievous kind of problem-causing uh, creature in the area. Uh, another idea, Chris, is that Canuck could uh, be stealing these materials and different items, shiny objects, uh, because it's actually just a bird that's working for gremlins, as presented in the Midnight Road supplement for Chronicles of Darkness. Okay. Uh, these are very interesting creatures that uh, tend to... Uh, well, they're, they're kind of akin to knockers in Changeling Dreaming, which we were just talking about, where they uh, like to... Uh, build things, modify contraptions, and uh, can do some pretty terrible things to humans that they catch with their machines. Uh, so maybe this animal is just collecting different supplies for a project that the gremlins are uh, undertaking elsewhere in town. And of course, uh, this could be some sort of spirit. Um, in Werewolf Forsaken, uh, this raven causing its uh, ruckus in the world could actually reflect something far more dire in the uh, the spirit world, in the, uh, the shadow beyond the gauntlet. Hmm. So, Chris, do you have any uh, ideas for this random, bizarre <laughs> uh, situation? By the way, it's also uh, Canada Day today. Uh, good thing we're talking about Canuck. Yeah, um, okay, let's see. So, if we go back, if we start with the one that you ended on then, um... It could also be one of the host spirits. It could be a personific- it could be a physical manifestation of one of the hosts. Because uh, it is in, uh, I think it's Predators, which was first edition. It has uh, crows. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has crow spirits. 
uh, more crow host. Oh. So oh, okay. it could be collecting things because it's gathering bits and pieces that has something to do with bringing more of its kind into our world or whatever. I can't quite remember what those host spirits do, but they've mostly got something weird that they do. And collecting things is very... It is part and parcel of, you know, crows and ravens and uh, magpies. So that kind of fits into their modus operandi. It's just what kind of magical thing is going on. It'd be interesting if this was a creature that was working in some way for the the god machine. So what if it's one of those, um, I can't remember the term, but you know, the mimetic uh, virus spirit things that the god machine uses. Again, it's the crow is embodied by one of those things and again it's just collecting things but it may well cause a where it's collecting things it may well cause a virgence of energy similar to a um, similar to some sort of uh, of construct for the gold machine and it then starts giving off uh, etheric resonance for demons so it's not actually something that's doing the gold machine any direct benefit but it acts like uh, one of those uh, uh, infrastructure sites. Yeah, it could be a stigmatic, what? I guess, as well, or cryptic. Yeah. Uh, one idea, you know, kind of playing off the whole collecting of items, uh, this spirit, let's say it's the spirit, uh, might have to collect specific items and pass them across the gauntlet in a form of exchange mm. to bring over more spirits of its kind. So the interesting thing for, let's say, a group of mages to solve is what items is it collecting? What's the pattern to this? And if they find that out, that will help them capture it or some of its uh, minions as well. Mm. The other thing I like is it could be a creature working for... Um, Given it's a crow, raven, maybe it's working for one of the true fae. Uh, maybe it's working. In, uh, yeah. So it's collecting things uh, so that the true fae creature, uh, the the gentry, uh, can make a um, a fetch to replace someone. Oh, perfect. Yep. Uh, and that works in with the whole idea of the wild hunt. And the wild hunt was obviously led by Odin. Odin gave his eye and is related to crows and ravens because they see for him. Uh, in their mythology, uh, I would also say it's quite. It could quite easily be a creature working for a vampire through, obviously, the use of animalism, and has also had has been bloodbound to the level that it works as a a form of um, direct control. Again, the vampire can see through its eyes and it gathers and collects things. So maybe it's stealing post from its rivals. Um, on the behalf of the vampire um, that's all it's doing, it's just stealing post um, yep uh, have I not thought of another game that it could be used, yeah go with a cryptid you know you could do something weird like that uh, or it's also um, you know numerous crows are acting like this in an area it could be some kind of fallout from disquiet uh, due to some Promethean uh, or it's kind of like um uh, the knock-on effect of some demon, perhaps, maybe in Demon Fallen, kind of like you know the the um, the uh, the plagues of Egypt kind of thing. You could be going with a smaller level version of that kind of problem, um, as some Neverborn is about to wake up and he's tied to crows in some way. 
that's kind of what I would use. I think you could either it's the direct manifestation of the action of some supernatural creature, or it is some forbearance on something about to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. I like it. Cool. All right, I think that's it for the uh, secret frequency. So let's move on over to Chronicles of Darkness. Chronicles of Darkness. All right, Chris. So we're going to talk about Secrets of the Covenants, which was developed by uh, Ramblin' Rose Bailey. And it's an interesting book. It's, uh, in some ways, a second edition to the first edition, Vampire of the Requiem, Covenant source books yes. uh, that came out for, you know, the Carthians, the Invictus, etc. But it's very different because it's more of an in-game artifact, isn't it? Yeah. I think some of the complaints about the first edition Covenant books is they were quite long, very dry reads. Um, and I can agree with that. I think they are quite long. They're not the type of book you would... They're not the type of book you would read page, you know, Front, front to back, page for page. Um, they're very much to dip in yeah. to get ideas to how to construct your covenants in your setting so that you knew how the political infrastructure of your city operates uh, and whether you've got internal sub-factions. Secrets of the Covenants is not that. Um, in the back, if we talk about the rule, what it presents rules-wise, first of all, it does present updates and new interpretations of certain merits and also um, particular powers that are associated with uh, each of the covenants. So obviously we get a new look at Carthian law. We get brand new Kruak rituals. Uh, we get um, brand new Thaban sorcery. We get some new coils. We get new scales for the Auto Dracul. And I think all of those, the examples there are really great to use. Um, I can You can never complain about those type of things. I really like the idea of Kruak style. So this is a new mm-hmm. uh, a new merit. So essentially, it's, again, it's how do you perform your magic, uh, which makes sense for the, for the Circle of Chrome because their cults could manifest their, um, their, their mythology and ideas through different lenses, whether it's, say, they're, they're more Egyptian-themed versus more Wiccan versus something that's maybe based on Shinto. It really depends. So having, having those as examples means then you can build Kruak styles that fit the regional cult that you've developed, that you're using, and obviously there are then... How you then use that with the different Kruak rituals is quite good fun. We also get the Invictus with their uh, with their oaths. I can't remember when oaths were introduced into uh, Requiem. Uh, I'm not sure either. I don't have the Invictus book. I meant to uh, kind of look that up and see if it was from there. I think they turned up in in there. So again, they're kind of like I think in some respects the vampiric kind of equivalent to um, making pledges in in Changing the Lost. So again, you're getting yeah. some benefit, and you're you're binding that with with a ritual and with vitae and the power of of uh, that comes with that. Yeah, the big thing with the notary is that you or with the uh, with the oaths is that you need to use a particular character that's a notary. Yes. Basically, it's like kind of like a, a third party. Yeah. to seal the deal effectively, and that's really cool because that then reinforces how the Invictus operate compared to the Carthians. The Carthians have like they commun- as a community that agrees on a certain set of laws, and they all agree on it, and those laws they can essentially invoke responsive manner against uh, their enemies or 
or enforce upon the city, whereas oaths are more between individual vampires, but it needs to be signed off on someone that has uh, been indoctrinated through the Invictus to the point that they can bind that oath. So I quite like that. That's, you know, like I say, it's kind of like pledges and changeling. Obviously, as I said, there's, there's updates and merits. But then, of course, we've got all the, all the, um, all the stories within this book. And uh, that's where kind of I think it's a it's a, a a mixed a mixed bag. I've not read all of them. That's because I will let's let's be upfront about things which are more technical issues. Some of the fonts suck balls. They are just really just they don't help with reading it. Uh, again, you should only dip into this book at. at for ideas don't read it cover to cover i don't find it a page turner like that then the poor choice of fonts can can be can be combined with the poor choice of backgrounds because they want to make the paper look like it's a real piece of paper but it can just lead to contrast issues and again it just screws with your eyes and you can't read it i mean it just doesn't help so yeah, mm. this is the same kind of problem that a lot of people used to have with Hunter the Reckoning source mm-hmm. books back in the day. They had all these kind of funky fonts, uh, usually matched up to different like creeds and stuff like that. But especially when you put it onto the backgrounds of like crumpled paper, that sort of thing. Yes, you couldn't read half the words. So let's talk about my highlights in this. I think the for the Lanka Sanctum section is quite interesting because it talks about different creeds and how. Uh, it uses the um, signature character from from the New Orleans book, who is the prince of the city, and talking about how he's reconciling his uh, his interpretation of uh, the beliefs of the Lancaster Sanctum and how that relates to other things that are going on in the world, and how he's met like Solomon Birch from Chicago, and and it's got a transcript of Solomon Birch's like uh, um, uh, one of his speeches, one of his sermons. So I kind of like that and about the kind of different ways that the Lancaster Sanctum kind of manifests. It has like this punk, they talk about a very kind of punk kind of group of, of well, Christian punk kind of uh, churchgoers and uh, and they have a band and then there's obviously the more traditional interpretation of the Lancaster Sanctum. Uh, with the Ordo Dracul, again, it gets onto some really fun topics. It talks about the possibility of a sixth clan and about convergent evolution, which I think we're big fans of in Vampire the Requiem, that idea. Uh, mm-hmm. It talks about different yep. kinds of experiments that have been done. And and uh, again, I think those in-game kind of uh, artifacts work for that. I think they work quite well because they give you a good insight into the diversity of those groups and the idea that like the, the Ordo Dracula are made up of different kind of like research groups almost. And the Lancaster Sanctum is made up of different churches that have their own version of the Bible as it were, or the, the Testament of Longinus and how they interpret that. When we get to the other groups, I think the Invictus is okay. Again, it's a little bit laborious talking about how the Invictus embrace certain people and then they pair them up as kind of an experiment to see what ideology wins out. And if that ideology is then worthwhile incorporating into their methods at that time, so the Invictus can survive in the current time period. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some, yeah, it's pretty neat. There's some uh, there's some idea ideas for that, and you can see how you could possibly get some ideas for where 
you you say, well, you're recently embraced as a member of the Invictus. You your 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 sire has uh, tasked you with doing this because for you to gain full access into the Invictus, you must prove yourself through this challenge. And that could be a very long-term plot line that's played out alongside your more immediate plots that you run in your chronicle. So it just gives your player something, maybe something else to think about. With the Circle of the Crone, I think there were some exam. Essentially, it gave you some examples of rituals that are used and how different ideas spread around, but. I, again, I, did, I found that one wasn't kind of as fun to read that section, and the Carthian chapter for the um, I didn't find very interesting beyond what I'd already read about the Carthians. And you know, that's I like the Carthians. I really like the diversity of political systems that the Carthians use, and was presented in their original Covenant book. I just don't think the fluff fiction, I say fluff fiction, the the in-game artifacts really added anything new for me to understand about the Carthians. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like in some ways this book wasn't really written for us. No. Because we're more interested in just like, let's dig into the details and kind of get some cool ideas for our game. And this is more, you know, like with the Carthian one, just like, yeah, man, I'm going to tell you how this all really is. This is how the world really works. And that sort of thing, which, you know, I've seen that before in World of Darkness books, and it doesn't really give me any new ideas uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was just, yeah, I I just, I found the Carthian section kind of a bit grating at times. I mean, I understand it was, it, it did get into little bits where they're, they're um, I think it was from the perspective of some Carthians based in, in, um, in New York, kind of that whole kind of, um, uh, I can't think of the, uh, the movement that was there. Oh god, my brain's gone blank. Um, the Occupy movement—it kind of had that kind of trying to evoke that, and you know, uh, their their sampling from different areas, uh, such as uh, like in Texas or in Mexico or Dubai or in um, I think it was Korea or somewhere like that in that region. You know, they were there were stories from each of those places mm-hmm. and how they were either disturbed or inspired by um, by how the Carthians operated in that area. And essentially, we're learning how this group of New York-based Carthians are putting together the laws of their city, like what should be allowed or what shouldn't be allowed. But I still... F- it, it just didn't really grab me. Um, because I think... There's some bits in the original Carthian book which were which could have been uh, elaborated on quite a lot. Like um, the Night Doctors in the original book are such a really interesting little sub uh, faction which could have made for some good extra um, stories. Uh, like uh, the very very scientific approach to the uh, kindred condition, but we didn't really get that. Um, it was it all just read about it all just read kind of very too much, like. Yeah, we're the re- re- revolution, but saying they are, but it didn't feel like I didn't really get the sense that what they were doing was revolutionary. It was more saying it, not feeling it. Yeah, I'm. I, there's a couple of times where I was getting kind of a very tongue-in-cheek vibe about that entire section, but I don't know. It was kind of tough to get through. Mm. Um, but leaving that aside, I think 
in a lot of ways. Uh, the real reason why a lot of people would be grabbing this book is because it has a lot of the updated rules for, um, you know, different, you know, Kruak, uh, Theban sorcery, and of course, things like Carthian laws, which is in the appendix chapter. Mm. Uh, do we want to kind of just talk over those a little bit and some of the new changes that have been introduced, that sort of thing? Yeah, if you want, go for it. Uh, sure. Well, I mean, uh, I think what stood out to me, I don't have any of the first edition books except for the uh, Carthian one. And looking through that, by comparison, the Carthian laws that are introduced here are much more codified as basically merits than in the previous uh, book. Uh, the first edition one, it was just kind of like this vague set of rules for if the Carthians control a domain, then they can enact these laws. And now kind of the interesting thing about them is that you don't need to control the domain and you basically just need to get together a bunch of Carthians, sometimes even a majority of the ones in the domain to enact these laws, which then affect everyone there, basically everyone in the city. And I found this actually really cool and inspiring because it can really explain how the Carthians can get so fractious because if they start enacting these laws, then people from other covenants that disagree with these laws that are affected by them are going to start trying to influence the Carthians, try to get them to change their mind, break their pacts, break the laws, and reset things from there. So it makes it very interesting for how, while they are their own covenants, you can see how they're being influenced by everyone else mm. in the domain. So I thought that was pretty neat. Um, the oaths are pretty interesting as well. Um, really, there's a lot of like cool merits in here that I felt were really uh basically character concepts unto themselves they're really just very inspiring for uh developing vampire the requiem characters things like um like uh the court jester for example uh being a, a carthian merit for basically being a uh someone who who's a pundit who makes fun of uh like the prince for example and tries to throw them off balance and it gives him some kind of mechanical uh, feedback from there for how you can play your character. But then other things that are just kind of interesting, like uh, being a forum moderator mm-hmm. or like uh, a Facebook moderator in the Invictus, uh, just kind of like an interesting little concept and, and side thing, which uh, is just kind of a cool addition to your game. Yeah, I, I really like Carthian Law, so having that update is good. I just remembered there's one actually good uh, short story, sorry, from the, um, the Circle of Crone section, and it's one of the additions to... Um to the setting I really liked. So it, it talks about the um, uh, a crone that tends a garden of mandragora and how yeah. how oh, yeah. that is, um, how she obviously uses people to feed her plants and so forth. Because I, I really like that idea of, um, of how the crone, obviously they're, they're very much into trying to tap back into the cycle of life and death. And so... It's just again, it's kind of creepy and mandragora. The idea of this like vampiric plant that you can feed from and it gives you vitae, um, and it's another source. But the idea that you've got this kind of, you know, I don't know whether you want to call it, whether it's Wiccan or whatever kind of, however you want your vampire to be with their with their cult and uh, tending this garden of monstrous flowers. Um, did they update any of the rules? I know in Requiem. Second edition, there's updated rules on Mandragora. Uh, so again, just having a short story about that, because it reminds me of a... I did have a character in my own game who tended a garden of Mandragora. Uh, I, th- I think... Yeah. Of being crone as well. 
I have a suspicion. Yeah, there's a ritual in here for mandragoras. Or how you can use them. Yeah, mandragora gardens. So you can use them to, uh, the mandragoras, to perform your Kurak rituals at a distance. Uh, so that's kind of neat. Cool. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it just, it's kind of creepy. Um, it gets you, uh, you know, the, the plants can be alive. Um, you could just imagine a, uh, a, a, a crone acolyte planting some of these uh, near in the bushes of their uh, enemies, you know, outside their havens or somewhere like that to use, um, to be able to use them at a distance. So it's a, it's a, as a, as a book, I mean, it's only like, it's 200 odd pages, you know, I would say what well, the last 50 pages is interesting rules, which I quite like new powers. Um, and as for the short stories, it's, it's, it's hit and miss. Um, yeah, I think my personal recommendation would just be, um, I mean, if you're a completionist or something, you know, get the book, whatever. Uh, but if you just want the rules, I mean, that's kind of like the, I feel like the main reason to uh, check out this book for the second edition updates. Uh, just wait for it to be on sale, get it on PDF, and yeah, you should be uh, pretty happy with it then. <laughs> yeah, that really covers it. Um I guess uh, I hope I'm looking forward to hopefully something that's a bit more um, rev- uh, revelationary in the in the sense of it tells me something a bit new, and I think that's what uh, um, the elders book that we uh, mentioned earlier is going to be. I hope. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. So I think that's it for this episode. And uh, yeah, we're Darker Days Radio. You can send us an email over at darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, check out our Facebook, facebook.com slash darkerdaysradio. And of course, Twitter, which is at darkerdaysradio. Uh, yeah, um, I don't think there's anything else to say. Oh, we have a new blog. Uh, the new blog has been up and running for oh, right. uh, a yep. couple of weeks now. Um, it's just a fresher look at it. Uh, it's been up for a month, I've been told. Uh, it's been up for a month. Yeah, so we'll get some more film reviews on there. And if people have got ideas for whatever type of content they would like from us, whether that's video um, or written, please just say, because it's good to you know do something else other than just recording audio all the time. Yeah, but that's about it, I think. So um, any other last words? Nope, I think that's it. Chris, thank you as usual. Chig had to leave, yeah. as people may have noticed, uh, to go to work. <laughs> but uh, yeah, great episode, and everyone, have a good night. See ya. This has been an episode of Darker Days Radio. Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com.